Because all the masters of science Have shown a great light on us all I envy the path of your shadow That offers a wondrous call Where promises lead us to ruin A kiss can drive you to your grave We leap off the edge of tomorrow Welcome to another episode of Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. I'm Roger, your host and head monkey wrangler here at the drum shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And today we're going to get to talk to Stephen Stetcher of Doc Sweeney Drums out of Southern California. These are some of the newest drums that we have on our floor and they are unique in that they are all steam bent or stave built shells. Steve has some wonderful insight into their concept of the use of woods, the way they use uh, reinforcement rings, the way they choose bearing edges, their drum head choices, just a lot of great information. I am a self-professed whack job about technology regarding drums and drum heads and why they work or this works and shell composition. And I'm often the one that gets kicked out of trade show booths and usually off of company tours because I'm going to ask the questions that nobody wants to ask or wants to, but are just too freaking scared to do so. So sit back and let's enjoy this time with Stephen because he provides a lot of wonderful insight and I had a load of fun talking with him. And here we go. Well, good morning, Stephen, and welcome to Too Stupid to Know That I Can't, which is... Uh, obviously the podcast for the drum shop and a whole lot of other things that we do. But I wanted to welcome you and Doc Sweeney Drums to today's interview. Well, thank you. Oh, the pleasure is mine, to be quite honest. You guys make some very, very exquisite drums, and I'm super excited having them here. And uh, I have a feeling we're just going to probably jump right into the conversation. Certainly. Uh, and get right into the questions. Give us a little bit of background as to who is or what is Doc Sweeney Drums. Uh, great question. Doc Sweeney Drums came about um, as a result of me retiring early uh, and at a younger age and decided I needed to find something to do with my life. <laughs> and uh, so I set up a music uh, studio in my, in my home and bought some drums and decided that maybe it'd be kind of interesting to to build one, one led to two, two led to a dozen, and led to many more. And once I started doing it and people got interested in it, uh, that is when I established at the end of, uh, of 2014 the, the idea of Doc Sweeney Drums. And that came about uh, by naming the company after my best friend, who happens to be Pat Sweeney or Doc Sweeney. He and I grew up uh, playing drums starting in the 70s and touring and we've kind of come full circle where we now both are actively involved in the passion we had as kids and uh, actually included a third person who was part of the music scene that we were at uh, who's a graphic designer came up with our logo so this is uh, something where these middle-aged men come full circle and decided to build drums and so what we did is I've decided that if we're going to build drums, we're going to look at doing something different, something truly unique, not only aesthetically, but sonically, 
which led me after a, quite a bit of research and quite a bit of testing to the concept of building only solid wood drums. And uh, if we I, do that if in, in, in two ways. One, we use the stave construction method and we use the steam bent method. And over time, we've been able to work with technology, build our own CNC capability, our own computer-based milling machine that allows us to produce a steam bent shell that's a perfect cylinder in significantly less time than it does manually. Oh, wow. And as a result, we're able to bring the price points down and the quality up to where it is more accessible to a larger uh, audience. And so our whole focus, now that we're both old retired dudes, is <laughs> to have fun creating something that is uh, out there on the edge of performance and more focused on delivering that experience than uh, to the end consumer than we are in profit. So we take challenge, we take, uh, if you will, we, we take a lot of risks, we do a lot of different things, we experiment, but that experimentation has led us to, you know, creating our own hardware, creating our own shells, uh, our own finished techniques. And we think that all couple, uh, couples together to create a unique uh, drum experience. And we're hoping that that's what we exist for. Wow. You pretty much just knocked out like five of my questions all in one fail swoop. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Thanks. Uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of those because I think there's I would hate to say that there is a lack of understanding, but I think there are a lot of internet mis misnomers about certain types of construction, certain things that go into making drums and why. Uh, I think there's a lot of hypothesis, but very little. Let me go back. I think there is a lot of anecdotal information, but not a lot of true factual information about a lot of different things. Right. And I think and I want to dig into some of those because I think it'll help clarify perhaps your guys's perspective as a philosophy and a company and clear some of that. What I, I guess I like to call it pulling back the curtain. Let's just tell the truth and let's, let's state facts as what facts are. Um, for example, the interview that we did with Bill Dedimore of Pork Pie, there's a lot of internet speculation and conversation. So I just decided to take all of it right to him and go, all right, here's your chance to tell the truth. And he did. And I think that's that's really critical, especially in today's drum marketplace where I, I would hate to say that there is nothing truly exciting coming out of the big brands. But in my opinion, there's nothing exciting coming out of the big brands. Um, there's no real innovation. It's like, OK, great. We've got a new lug casing. Yeah. OK. Does it really do anything? Or we're doing this type of apply with this or that but is that really doing anything for the sound or is it just marketing hyperbole and propaganda now to say all that because i do believe there is something different about a solid shell or solid construction in steam bent or stave um i really got my first introduction with the sakai japanese cypress stave snare drum mm -hmm. which blew my mind and I'd, and I'd experienced stave through conga and bongos and that sort of thing. But when you guys talk about solid construction, are you saying solid construction versus plywood construction as we know many drums are laid up today? 
And if so, can you tell a little, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between a steam bench shell and a stave shell and what their individual advantages or characteristics might be? Certainly. Um, Excellent question there. When you look at the um, stave versus steam bent versus ply, for example, I think the best way of, of thinking about it is if you take uh, if you take a ply shell, obviously you have several thin layers of things that are glued together to, to as a resulting into a ply shell. If you if you uh, hit anything that's glued together, obviously it, it will have some impact on the overall resonance and performance of the wood because it's it's glued. If you think of it in terms of a bell, a bell that's one solid piece of brass uh, will be pure and sound. If you layer uh, pieces of brass together, that sound changes dramatically just by the nature of adding that ply. So what we've been doing is we're finding that there are two really distinct voices that come out of the solid wood drums. And in a stave, because the wood is actually in the orientation that it grows, meaning it's it's a vertical stave, it's all the energy is transferred into a solid piece of wood, and that is a solid one board. You're having that energy trans transferring down through the shell body in in a much more regular fashion because all of the all of the 20 staves, for example, in a snare drum. Uh, are all of the same wood, the same density. So you're getting a unique, consistent uh, energy transfer through that, which will create a more pure resonance. And in in my opinion, a longer sustain uh, because of the nature of the wood. Uh, On the other side of of our uh, offerings, the steam vent is taking, and once again, using snare drum as a model, takes Mm -hmm. a 49 inch long board uh, that is one solid, not free board, uh, taking it down to a half an inch thick and then steaming it and bending it around a cylinder. The only joint in that drum happens to be the, sta- the scarf joint. So there's only one part of the drum that has any glue to keep it together, uh, with the exception of those that use re-rings. You put re-rings in these days for not for stability, um, and integrity. You, they're actually used for more of a focused and solid note. Okay. The, the technology that exists today that we use is is different than that was done in the 20s and, and 30s and actually the turn of the century in the 1900s. The technology is much more exacting and the, the um, soaking, steaming, and curing is also done differently. Uh, and even with, in some cases, added chemicals, depending on the specialization of the wood. That allows us to have the purest piece of steam bent and the most exacting cylinder, because the computer does it to exactly five sixteenths of an inch thick. So what we're able to do with that is get a a very focused note uh, and possibly less sustained with the steam bent, because, of course, the wood is going under uh, significant pressure as it's built, as it's bent around a cylinder, but yet you still have a more pure amount of energy resonance transferring down the shell wall, which will give you an overall better note, um, for example, in, in toms. Uh, and it can be, it's um, something that engineers and studios uh, will mention all the time is the 
the EQ of drums that are solid wood in nature, whether they're stave or uh, steam bent. What we're doing to take it to the next level now, and they'll be coming out soon, of which you'll be getting one of the first ones, is what we're calling a unibody drum. And the unibody shell is taking the uh, stave shell, excuse me, taking the steam bend shell, and then as opposed to having re-rings, uh, we'll bend it at five-eighths of an inch thick. The entire cylinder would be that. And we will mill the internal wall, the five-sixteenths. There will be no glue re-rings. They'll actually be, they'll be milled into the drum itself, which means you are taking a drum and creating a drum that has the least amount of glue that you can possibly make unless you're hollow out a log. Uh, which is very expensive and time-consuming. So you actually only have one area of the drum that has any glue. Uh, and so you will get the most pure wood sound that we can produce without making a hollowed-out drum. Uh, the, there's less mass, uh, allows the drum to vibrate, if you will, um, at a frequency that would be considerably different than ones with glued re-rings. So we think with that, we're getting about as clear and close as we can to the real sound of the wood and performance of the wood. The same holds true on how we do staves. We do staves with even thinner walls if required. So at the, at the bearing edge, they'll be a half an inch thick. We mill the internal side an inch down or three, three quarters of an inch down from each side, the top and bottom, mill mm -hmm. it to a quarter an inch. That wow. makes the most resonant shell that you can possibly do that still has integrity, that won't break. And so you're going to get the most resonance out of that particular shell than you will of anything that we produce. It is the, in essence, it is the, if you consider it this way, it's the thin wall uh, that are commonly brought out with uh, a lot of the newer ply drums. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of those do glue re-rings Yep. Well, ours has no glue uh, for re-rings because the re-ring is part of the actual board, and they're all from the same board. Uh, so you have the sound integrity all around that cylinder uh, of the same board generating the same amount of energy. There is no glue. There's no difference in the species. You know, when you're doing shells uh, in a ply way, you could have maple exterior and, and God knows what interior and maple exterior, you know, you, you just have things that are operating at a different energy and a different frequency. We eliminate that by kind of creating a solid mass of wood walls, whether it's in the stave or the steam bedside. Well, that brings up a whole different set of questions. I, for years, have felt that if a shell can be counterboard from its original build, that it'll create one of the better sounding shells based on your unibody, or you're calling it the unibody, correct? Unibody shells, yep. Unibody shells. So that's always been one of my contentions. I've always, even with some of the most well-built plied shells on the planet, I have always believed that even though you're using glue and you're using all these apparatus to squeeze as much of that glue to impact every single portion of those plies, I've always felt that there is what in the cycling industry for carbon fiber is known as as void factor or air bubbles. Exactly. And and I don't I I ha, I, I am I am a I'm a constant skeptic and I, I firmly believe that there is not one shell on the planet that is plied that has a zero void factor. 
That would be a safe assumption. And remember that the inner plies will also not have the same level of structural integrity as the externals. You know, in other words, they, they're often using different things yeah. amongst the shell. And let's say they use the exact same thing around the entire shell. What they do is there's cold press method and there's a, a hot method. Most of them are mm -hmm. created using heat and compression. Mm -hmm. You're changing the actual structure of the wood fibers when you do that. And you have glue in between. So there is no way to make a pure, consistent, uh, if you will, thickness uh, and integrity of that all the way around the shell. Because it just, by the very nature of the fact that six or eight plies, glue between each, uh, and then pressed under heat, uh, you're going to have voids. It's, it's just impossible to, uh, even in the most per perfect vacuum sealed, heated, all of that is still, it's not going to be the same thing as a solid board that is only glued at the joints. You know, that you, you can't get around the fact that a steam bent drum is one board. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just, you know, mother nature has voids in it, it by the way, you know, because each board, each each tree has its own imperfections, but mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's mother nature's imperfections and generally a lot fewer because what you see under the, under the pressures that are put in the steam vent, uh, you have to be extremely good at identifying the types of things you bend because any kinds of voids or any kinds of imperfections will be clearly identified when you put it under pressure. It'll, It'll uh, crack, it'll split, it'll do grain raising, it'll do all kinds of things. So once the shell actually gets through curing and begins the milling process, you know you've got a, a piece of structural integrity there because it will actually stay as a cylinder even before you do the, the joint. And one of the things that we can show you that we've done is we've taken a shell that has been milled and finished and cut it into pie pieces and then you could put it back together. It looks like a drum, but you take it apart. None of those pie pieces will ever change. You would think that they would want to go back to, you know, their steady state, but they don't. And that's because of the curing process and things like that. So, you know, this thought of it going out of round and, and uh, wanting to turn into an oval or all that, um, we, you don't see that in the steam vent drums of today. Not, I mean, you clearly would have in the old days, um, you know, that's why they did re-rings and all kinds of other things that they had to do. And they were milled by hand, you know. Which which now leads me to your single scarf joint. Uh, if you could, within, within the context of no video, if you can describe a scarf joint for our listeners, because, again, a lot of people have kind of an understanding. Sure. But it's... It's all surrounded by a bunch of marketing hyperbole that I don't think clearly gives a good picture as to how that actually works. Because when we're talking about a steam bend shell, you're going to have, yes, the, the least amount of glue. But the next question by somebody will be, well, if it's the least amount of glue, how is that one joint going to hold? Exactly. That's an excellent question. The way a scarf joint works in the steam bending is the exterior foot piece. So the, foot, the, the part of the shell that is going to have the overlap on the outside is let's just say it's like a 45 degree angle cut in the depth of that. So mm -hmm. the exterior stays there and you have a pie piece that's 45 degrees and it's two to four inches long, depending okay. on the 
shell. The interior piece is just the exact opposite. It is cut at a 45 degree angle uh, where the out, outer pieces of it. So those, they overlap like fingers or hands where the top and the bottom giving you a surface area uh, that goes the entire depth of the shell and anywhere from two to four inches. So the glue, when they overlap each other, is basically what a scarf joint does. And so that is an entire section that holds the, the integrity of the shell and keeps it in round. So, it, and it also, basically you have one end of the board touching the other end of the board and overlapping itself. Uh, and, you know, you, in essence, on the exterior of the shell have one line and on the inside, if you look at the shell, two or three inches to the other side will be the interior part of that overlap. That will show you on the shell, you have, you know, the distance between those two is how big the scarf joint is. Okay. So it's, does it, it, it does it create almost like an interlocking type of bond where as things start to expand and contract, it's literally just pulling against itself and just reinforcing it then? That's correct. Right. You know, it's it's a wedge okay. uh, that's been created. Right. And and once it's glued, you know, because by the way, the shell before that will have that when you finish bending, it will actually be a shell that has an overlap that's not glued, but it's okay. in a cylinder and they're hugging themselves tight already. So what happens? We pull that back slightly. It, we have, the glue is applied to the entire area of that scarf joint. It's then um, adhered and reclamped and allowed to cure. So that curing time change it varies with species because of the way each drum will, uh, will handle certain things, and we've refined that. But once you pull it out, that thing is a cylinder. It then goes into the CNC machine as a five eighths of an inch cylinder uh, that may or may not be exactly perfect when it starts because there may be some imperfections when it. But once the, the CNC machine goes in and mills the in, internal side and the external side, that computer will make a perfect five sixteenths of an inch cylinder. And in the, in the case of the unibody, it starts at the top, goes from five eighths and then cuts inside and then extends back out. So there is, um, you create that resonance shell wall uh, from the bearing edge roughly three eighths of uh, three quarters of an inch down on the top and bottom. So you kind of hollow the drum out in a way. Instead of gluing re-rings in, you take the shell, basic shell thickness, the shell wall, thinner to create a more resonant drum. Which, thankfully, I'm glad you made that segue. I have been of the opinion that a thicker shell projects more whereas a thinner shell will have more body. Is that fairly that, accurate? That is accurate. And um, for example, we make, we've made drums everywhere from seven eighths of an inch thick steam bent to um, snare drum that would, you know, uh, basically peel the paint off your wall um, to very, very thin. So yes, there, there'll be more projection. There'll be a lot less resonance and a lot less sustain. So, you're going to have a very sharp, great attack. And then, of course, the bearing edge will make some difference on that. But the thinner you go and the least density in the wood, the deeper, more resonant it'll get. And, you know, we use everything from mahogany and elm uh, all the way up to babinga. So you have a wide variety 
of densities, which will create that um, attack. So in some cases you could do a shell that's half an inch thick out of different species. They'll still have a lot of attack and uh, projection, but yet, you know, you, one out of a bingo will be a, a heck of a lot more attack than one out of poplar. That poplar thick one at, at say half an inch thick may be similar because it's so, the density is so low that it may be similar to a quarter inch of oak. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. It's just, yeah, it's it's the amount of, of, of density uh, of the wood and we, we've studied that. By the way, I'll just bring up one thing, you know, to that point that you raised about actually having empirical evidence of mm -hmm. what's the difference between all these species and bearing edges and all that. We are, um, my son-in-law is finishing his doctorate degree in audiology at Boston University. Oh, well, congratulations. And he is working with us to do um, a research project. We're creating uh, six identical steam bench shells, uh, everything identical on them, all the hardware identical, all the heads, every single thing identical. The only variable on any of them would be the species. So the bearing edges and everything. And in the Boston University lab, we will be testing the sound performance of oak, maple, walnut, cherry, and an exotic. So we will actually show on all of his different systems what happens in terms of the frequency ranges and the length of those things. So we'll know how the different drums perform. We'll then follow that up with a stave one as well. So there will be, uh, in short order, evidence uh, of performance of these different species. So instead of someone saying, I think cherry is a little warmer or walnuts warmer than this and that, well, you can see why it will be, where the where the drum actually performance performs in terms of frequency and how long it's sustained. All of that, that will actually be the, the first time we as an organization will have empirical evidence of the difference between the species so we can talk to people about you know, if you're looking for a bright sound or you're looking for a warm sound or you're looking for a fat sound, well, what produces that? There's, you know, the bearing edges obviously contribute, uh, but the species is going to make a pretty significant difference. So part of that exercise is to really know the tonal qualities of the woods that we use. And then the variables will change to bearing edge difference. Um, and we will be using a, an arm that hits the drum exactly the same um, pressure and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to leave the only variable in this case being the wood and then the next variable being the bearing edge so people can really hear some of the performance. So all that will be recorded and he's doing that at BU. Well, I, I am doing my best to contain my elation <laughs> because so I, I played a little bit of quick history. I played drums for a very, very long time. I quit at a late teenage year uh, got very, very involved in the cycling industry. Uh, so much so that I went from just being a basic mechanic to, all the way to a team mechanic, to a vendor rep, to a vendor liaison, yada, yada, yada. We did a lot of prototyping and R and D work. So I became familiar with certain processes. And when I came back to playing music, I was so used to seeing test data results and evidence here's why this works here's right. the data here's the graphing here's its here's its shear strength here's its deflection here's its performance and as i got deeper and deeper into playing drums no one has any of that data and right. 
and one of my biggest complaints is if and I'm only using this as a as a as a for instance, if suspension mounts for drums are so popular or so good for the drum, why do people still keep buying vintage drums? Right. So it, it brings up all these these questions. And I think Yamaha did one of the best things by creating that yes mount at the nodal point of the shell. Now, again, that could be some level of hyperbole, but as I tested some of the theories of playing with wood with sticks, there is a spot on a drumstick where you can tap it and hold the stick and it doesn't affect its sustain, resonance, or tone. Right. Do you Do you feel that the direction that Doc Sweeney is going, especially with this new batch of evidence, do you believe that that will maybe dispel a bunch of the myths or at least bring to a more better light as to what we're actually talking about? Well, our, you know, with, with this approach, uh, it is our, our intention to be able to provide, you know, some empirical evidence of what really happens with the drama and, and that, uh, we cut through the hyperbole, as you put it, uh, on what happens with all these different things and the different features and be able to show uh, in the graphic form what's actually happening to the drum. And we, we want to continue to do that to refine the sound. So we think, we believe, firmly believe, the unibody shell is going to be an extraordinary performer. Well, the first ones will be coming out in the next few weeks, so we'll know. Uh, but we'll be testing those. We're, our hypothesis is that by eliminating glue and having a unified body, uh, that we're going to get the most, the best performance out of that wood. In this case, it would be oak. We're, we're doing oak mm -hmm. uh, that we've ever done. And we will be able to show that, you know, with recording and with using the systems that he, that, that Chris has. So we, yeah, we're trying to cut through and figure out what, well, at the end of the day, Doc and I, are most interested in creating these instruments that um, are going to stand the test of time that are in essence should be heirlooms because I believe that these drums will only get better with you know as violins do and guitars do get will get better over time as the wood kind of comes to a steady state because anytime you either glue it anytime you do anything to wood uh, you're changing its structure and you're doing all kinds of things. It'll, it'll go back or it'll adjust itself over time. It'll kind of wear in, for lack of better terms, where your sound is even going to be better. Uh, I don't think that is probably true when you're looking at something that has glue added in between it. You, know, you, you don't have the same exact component. Uh, they're all changing at a different pace, if you will. They're, you know, uh, over time, they're aging differently the glues and the silicones and all that kind of stuff than the actual board itself, which was one board, you know? So it's, it's uh, all a part of it's the, the sibling, if you will, it's, it's one uh, unified thing. And we think that over time, you're going to hear some, some uh, nice performance out of it. So that that's our focus is to create stuff that will stand the test of time. And that by doing these advancements and ex explorations, we can kind of explain that. And with, with our hope is to get um, the price points down to where they're not considered uh, unattainable. You know, um, there will always be elements of what we do, whether it's we do East Indian rosewood, we do all these things. Well, there's things that taking it to the nth level um, in terms of experimentation and sound. But then 
by doing these six different species, we think would be able to have an offering that would have a sound profile that could be identified by drummers that would fit um, the genre and the style that they want to play, you know, uh, and they'll feel com more comfortable than the 25 different versions of what a Yamaha X or a Pearl Y or, a, you know, you know, it, there's just, there's really no way of, of having any kind of way of judging between it other than, um, you know, sitting behind a few of them, but. Well, that, that brings up a couple, a couple of my next questions. Uh, first, have you guys seen the need or has Doc Sweeney ever had a customer request where they've wanted a combination of shell types within the construct of building their custom kit? For example, maybe stave rack toms for that projection, but then steam belt floor toms and kick for a more bottom heavy note. Has that ever been a question? The the next yeah, question was it, that it has yeah it okay. has and, the, and that's all part of kind of the concierge service if you will from a custom build is really understanding the sound profile that someone really is trying to accomplish and so we have done those things we've actually created um a stave shell kit with a uh, a steam bent snare and we've done it the other way around too we've also done different thicknesses so you know there's always tends to be a consistent you know, in the, in the ply world, it's six or an eight, and every drum sends, tends to be the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. And the same species. Well, we've created ones that have different thicknesses as you go around the, the shells um, to give a whole different voice, you know, depending on what they're really aiming at. So whether you, uh, you have a snare that's a half an inch thick, and then you've got toms that are a quarter inch thick with bearing edges, we've done that. Um, and we've also done ones with different species where they wanted you know, a, a bass drum or floor tom with extraordinarily low um, kind of Gene Krupa sound, right? Well, that in, in our world could be mahogany, uh, could be walnut or could be poplar, but they wanted toms um, with a little bit more bite. So the rack toms could be birch, for example, um, or a birch snare drum, which is quite a bit brighter. Uh, it really just, just depends on, you know, how someone is going to, customize their sound so yes that is something that can be done and obviously it takes longer um and but you know i think the end result is a truly truly unique one-of-a-kind custom sound well let's talk about that since you bring up building a, since we brought up building a custom kit tell me a little bit about the process as to do you feel that maybe you guys interview your clients as to what what they're trying to accomplish, the type of timbre, the type of sonic values, the type of projection resonance. Do you do you feel there's kind of maybe an interview process that goes into building a custom kit? Yeah, there there is, and um, it can be. Uh, it, it basically requires a couple uh, interviews, uh, for lack of better terms. That we sit down and find out uh, what the sound profile. What is it? they're looking uh, to create, what kind of music do they play? What have they played in the past? Uh, what are the dimensions that they're comfortable with? And from that, we start working down to the species that they're that will create the sound that they're looking for. Uh, then we look at dimensions, which is all part of that sound as well. And the last thing we do is work to what the finish 
uh, would be and what the hardware would be. So we have standard Doc Sweeney tube lugs. We have standard Doc Sweeney um, uh, round lugs. Uh, but in some cases, if there's something that they wanted that's unique to a look, then we also talk about that. But what I do, and I do this a lot, is try to help them through um, things that they've been told, things that they think, and let them explain, you know, what it is and what they like. And for me to provide some guidance based on the experience of what will work and what um, makes sense. And what I do with every one of the custom builds is then have them involved throughout the process. So we do that by I hand select the boards. So they see the original boards. They see the boards once bent. They see the boards milled. Uh, they see the boards throughout the process. So they actually see the drum set come to life. And that's all part of the process. And that is something that gets the end consumer, the person, the, the owner, to have a real ownership of that process. They, they actually see what's happening. They see it's when it's sanded. They see when it's being finished. Uh, and in the case of a finish, for example, uh, someone says they want a, a blue maple drum set. Well, I do, you know, I personally do the die work. Well, what I'll do ahead of time and is do four or five different cuts of maple with blue finishes on them and let them pick from those because your your dark blue is not necessarily what anyone else's dark blue you know perception Correct. of blue is. So we do dial it in that way. And in the case that they are a natural finished person, which quite a few people are, then it gets down to, you know, do they want a satin finish? Do they want um, a high poly finish? And in most cases, ours are hand rubbed oil. And we use a non-toxic uh, finishing oil from England on every one of our drums. And I take the drums, apply that, sand it in, and sand the drums up to 2,500 grit, and in some cases, 3,000 grit. So there may be 20 coats of hand rubbed oil on the exterior, and I'll do anywhere from four to six on the interior. We do like uh, having that oil permeate the drums internally and externally because it also helps uh, avoid major issues and fluctuations in humidity. So the drums not soaking in a bunch of water or moisture uh, because it is permeated internally and externally by that oil finish. And it's much easier uh, with an oil finish to actually deal with any scrapes or scratches it only requires oil unless you really seriously damage the drum. Wow, that's super incredible. Like 3,000 grit? Yep. So I spoke to, to Bill about his finishing process, and he gave us a little bit of insight as to the complexity and the time in used to, to do his finish. Could you touch on that a little bit deeper? Like what... Sure. Because I'm not a woods, I'm not a woodworker. I've heard right. the terms, but maybe to give a little bit of clarity, because out there in the marketplace, you've got satin finish, ebony stain, high gloss. Like maybe provide a little bit of clarity as to why you guys use the finishes that you do and the products that you use. Absolutely. Well, uh, we use uh, a product that is um, is developed in England. It's a finishing oil. It's a non-toxic oil. It's one of the reasons we like using it. And it also is a, an oil that builds layers, if you will, permeates into the wood and builds layers as you apply more and more coats. And what we do um, 
is then begin, let it soak in uh, for 24 hours. We could sand it in and then we get, begin to add layers and we'll go because the shell's already sanded to 400 grit before mm -hmm. we apply anything, anywhere from 240 to 400 grit, depending on species. And then we begin the process of, of sanding from 600, apply layers, 800, apply layers. So it can, depending on the wood, because each wood will absorb oil at a different rate and a different amount, we then begin to, to um, for a more gloss finish for the hand-rubbed oil, we'll get up to 2,500 or even up to 3,000 grit. That takes it to as smooth of a surface as possible. Uh, uh, and to have the, the gloss where you actually see reflections in the shell. If someone wow. wanted a satin finish, so I just did a kit where I did a sunburst finish on it. Uh, that, the, to the dye finish and accomplishing that took four days. And then it took two weeks to do the finish process on that drum shot. So that was almost two and a half weeks just for the finish itself. Wow. Um, and it, and it, I do all of that. So, uh, and it's all done by hand. Um, on the natural wood finish where we do the oils, you, you have the sem what I would call semi-gloss, which is the hand rub stuff that I do. And we buff that out at the end. So that's hand rubbed oil, it's easily maintained. Uh, with a satin finish, we do the same process but we um, basically sand that down and continue to sand it uh, up to, uh, say, a, a six to 800 grit. Um, that will actually um, have it as a, as a satin finish. So it will own, it'll have some uh, gloss to it, but it'll, it'll be much more satin. Or we can use a, a finish oil on the top that will give it a total satin finish. And in some cases, which is very rare for us, we also do a high gloss poly finish and so uh, which is the ones that are truly mirror like and what that requires is several coats of spray of poly and um, sanding and buffing in between each uh, down to where we get up to you know very very fine grit where it's almost a piano like finish wow. that and, and that is something that people do like um, i would say it's a smaller portion of the consumer population a because it it's a finish that uh, it may be glass like but it's also going to be um, something that will get nicked and scratched and 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 obviously affected with the tour you know the the the, the tumbling and run, running around uh, so you know the wear and tear will show on that and it requires quite a bit of work to get it back to that glass finish so some people realize that after time that that is a high maintenance site it looks beautiful uh, but it can be a high maintenance item over time uh, because of the nature of you know oil versus that, we you do go back in and you're you're adding in essence plastic onto the outside of the drum. So you are wrapping it. Uh, in some cases, the thicker uh, poly finish will act more of as a tiny bit of an insulation because it's adding weight and mass to the drum, where the oil isn't doing the same thing. Wow, so. that's that's incredible to know. In in talking about some of your exotic stuff. When you guys create the, the dual species, do the two species work in tandem? Do they provide differing, perhaps tonal characteristics? Do they then become, 
and I and I and I guess I would reference do their vibratory characteristics kind of become the same or because of their densities they're different? What? Yeah. Does, how does exciting that affect thing about, Exciting thing about doing that is you can really create a unique sound. So, for example, if you're really into the the initial attack and uh, tonal ranges that maple produces, just as an example. But you would like some warm and longer um, warmth in it than than a general maple. Maple shells generally aren't considered warm. They're considered bright, good mid-tones, good attack. Well, the way that we can kind of produce a sound that has the best of that, but yet some more warm resonance is in, in the case of having the top part of the shell being maple. So the energy is transferred into the drum and the initial batter head reaction is all due to that. Uh, but the energy is transferred down to a wall, this bottom half of the drum being walnut, being much softer. Um, so you have the energy transferred into a wood that is going to vibrate and at a frequency different than the top. And so the resonant head is going to have a warmer sound coming out of it. So we think there's the attack that comes out of the maple, but yet a, just a warmer general overall sound. So you can have kind of the best of both worlds. You can do the other way around, too, by putting... In some cases, we would put oak or something on top, something harder or, or something softer, excuse me, and have a very hard wood at the end. So you could have a, a warm attack with short sustain. And that was just experimentation we did with different species to see what we would come up with. And we have a joint there uh, on the steam bench side that is one complete solid joint that are just laid on top of each other. On this, on the stave side, we actually have what what would be called a dado joint. So the energy is transferred directly into that shell all the way through, and the structural integrity is uh, something that can't be compromised. I mean, everything can be compromised, but it's it's certainly something that's transferring the energy. We think is as effectively as we can do. We've also done. Um, with snare drums, and I've actually done with some drum sets that I have here, uh, the concept of using wood to put the initial sound into the drum. So you've got either uh, babinga in one case or walnut in one case where you're transferring the energy in and the center part of the drum is actually, in our case, aluminum. And the bottom is also wood. So you can get um, an extremely different sound by how you tighten that drum. It becomes more metallic the tighter it is, um, sounds more like a metal drum, uh, but yet with some a little bit more warmth and a little less of the ringing that a metal drum has. So that was an experiment that I did. And the aluminum ring in our case completely floats. It's not, there's no uh, hardware added to it at all. So it can act as much like a bell as possible because it's only floating inside that and it's secured by the tube lugs itself. Um, well, you know, from wood to wood. So now you bring up, and I'm going to segue backwards a little bit. You brought up a couple. You, you mentioned a couple things that are almost diametrically opposed to what the industry has been telling people. Right. And I'd like to touch on that briefly. Um, first and foremost, when you say the density of the wood. Mm-hmm. Is that referring to, I guess, the, the Janka scale? Yes, exactly. The Janka uh, hardness rating is some, somewhat of the Bible in the wood industry in terms of the density 
uh, of wood, and and there's a whole thing behind it. You know, it's how deep uh, a ball bearing will penetrate at certain force. Anyway, it gives a relative hardness of all of these particular species. And what I would what I've done is did that research, but I've also spent a lot of time at Taylor Guitars, which happens to be based in El Cajon, which is only a few miles from here. Spent time with their luthiers and talked about the different species and the tonal qualities of those species um, and really got a better under. They also do steam bending guitars, obviously. So got a real good understanding of why they were using certain woods, how they were using certain woods. And the result of that helped us in our steam bending. We were the, created the first East Indian rosewood kit ever. We've also looked at elm. Uh, we've used myrtle. We've used Sedua, which is also called Alvincol. So we're a drum company that's using woods that are known to be exquisite acoustic woods for the acoustic guitar industry and taking those to the drums for the first time. So this whole concept of having only maple or having oak or having whatever, maple being the mainstay, is we were looking for something that is going to generate, whether it's a guitar or a drum, a different sound because it is acoustically been proven in violins and drums or violins and guitars and so on. So learning from them is what I've been taking back to our own shop and creating, for example, East Indian Rosewood snare drums, which are exquisite sound. Uh, Myrtle, which is used in acoustic guitars. Alvincol or Sedua makes a, we're the only ones that have ever done that. It makes extremely great sounding drums, whether stave or steam bent. And so on the exotic side, that's what we do is we don't just do for aesthetics or something that's just appealing visually is there is a method to the madness. And the method is what sound performance comes from these different species and how can we take what was learned in the string industry and move it to the drum industry and have something that's producing, whether you're stringing, you know, you have strings and you're strumming it or you're hitting ahead, whether it's, you know, synthetic or, or calfskin, you're going to have a different sound coming out of something like that, that is as close as we can get to using the methods of a guitar. And obviously you can't do the thin, but using the same species and using the, uh, the same treatments in terms of how you apply finish to it makes a huge difference. Um, and the glues used, for example, all that kind of stuff, you know, it's, it's better to, uh, you know, if you will, uh, take take lessons from people that are producing sound that everyone realizes acoustically good and see if you can actually trans transition that into the drum business. And that's what we've done or we're, we're attempting to do. Well, where one of the directions I wanted to go with that, I think you've made mention that just a few minutes ago that you, you were describing the tonal qualities of maple and then you stated the hardness or softness of walnut. That that right there really struck me because not being 100% familiar with the Jenka, is it Janka or Janka? Janka. Janka scale. Yep. And of course, all the, all, the, all the discussion as to what these different woods, birch, maple, oak, walnut, mahogany, what these woods are tonally described as are how if you were to let's let's just use maple let's choose oak and let's choose 
mahogany. Of those three woods, where do they rank in hardness or density? And what do you guys find their tonal qualities to be as it pertains to Doc Sweeney? Sure. Um, I'll I'll actually give you kind of a scale. Uh, A hard maple, there's many different types of maple, so we'll kind of get a standard. We'll say um, northeast rock maple, which is what most drums are made out of. Okay. it's ranking in, in the Jonica scale is 1450. Okay. If you go to cherry, uh, cherry is 950, which is a pretty significant drop, right? Okay. Um, w- walnut is 1010. And oak, um, which is very depending on white or whatever, but white or red, oak is around 1350. And birch is just a little bit um, south of that. So you got a pretty good range. Put to put that in perspective, uh, Babinga has a, a rating of roughly 2,300. Wow. So you kind of get a sense of, of, of how hard that is. And um, so what we have when we look at something like Myrtle, Myrtle is a wood that's indigenous to Oregon and California. And it is used on really high-end guitars. Um, it's uh, so sonically, it's incredible, but it's also a beautiful, beautiful wood. It is around 1,200. So you've got kind of the best of all worlds in that. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the warmth that's closer to the walnut. Walnut being very warm because it's a thousand. Maple having more attack, brighter, stronger mid and highs. Uh, and the walnut fits in between all of the, I mean, not the walnut, but the myrtle. Walnut, on the other hand, when you hit a walnut note, it'll be a nice round. It will have less attack, initial attack, because it's less dense, but it'll have a warmer sound. So it'll have a rounder, longer, warm note where, so it'd be more of a boo, where maple would be pow, you know, it'd be um a little bit more aggressive on the attack because of the you know, density. The same thing, if you move all the way up to Babinga, you're going to have a very strong presence, you know, um, birch. Um, and, and then if you also look at um, just the, 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 the nature of walnut, for example, is very porous. Where cherry, even though it's Don, Janka is, is 950, it is less porous. So it will perform... Uh, with a more brightness than walnut, which is very porous. And if you use, if you look at mahogany, which is around the 900 and 800, depending on what species you use of mahogany, it's very, very porous. So when you use a walnut drum or a mahogany drum, you're going to get that low, really fat register out of the notes. It'll be much more of a vintage, warm, inviting sound, something, you know, of the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, as you progress up, they move to birch and then they move to maple. So the, the sounds became brighter, more pronounced, and, and in some ways, um, in my mind, less musical, less note-driven than some of the old do 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 you know, where you just had really clear notes uh, and warmth, uh, you know, from the jazz drums of the day. Um, and poplar, which is very, very soft wood, actually even softer, something around 750, produces a tremendously great sounding snare drum if you want a fat, really vintage sound. So if you do the 14 by 7 and that, it'll just be a baritone sounding snare drum, you know. 
wow, a significant difference. I mean, very, very, very significant. You can actually put a gauge on it and do it to the same amount of tension as any other drum. And if you put it next to a maple drum, you would be absolutely amazed at how low and, and deep it is. And that's why when you, um, a lot of the guys that have been using some of our stuff, Walnut's been very popular and it's very popular in, um, in studio and in jazz environments where projection isn't as critical, right? Uh, so it's more musical and, and kind of gets that. If you need something that's really bright and really stands out, then you tend to go towards maple or birch uh, or even oak, you know, which is kind of up there. Um, but, the, you know, the, the farther you go down the register towards the mahoganies and stuff, that rich old vintage sound, as you move up, you're going to get this bright attack um, and just a whole different set of mid and high range frequencies that are are dominant. So if you that, think about frequencies, the low frequencies are dominant on the low end, less dense drums. That their whole voice is is around being a baritone, if you will. That and is then you crazy. move into you move into um, the uh, what I would say is the middle range, which would be myrtle and some levels of birch. You get to a tenor and you get kind of to a higher tenor in maple, and then you move up to a soprano as you get thicker. So it's going to start wow. with a much higher sound. It's, its inherent sound qualities are going to be higher at the same exact thickness of another shell that's a maple versus a you know, bambinga. It could not produce the same sound. The density, then, the density it's, it, put it this way, the vocal cords are different on those two. That's know? fair. So and that's what it is. Well, then then let's maybe try to clarify something that people experience on a retail floor of a drum shop or a music store. Fun, traditionally, or as we can hear on a drum floor, affordable shell packs, I don't care who they're made by, but affordable shell packs that are usually in poplar seem to have a fundamentally higher note when they're on the floor, even even when paired with single ply heads, as we all know, right. vibrate differently and more open. But if if a poplar snare can create such a baritone note, why is it in when it's mass produced for an affordable kit? Why does that kit have such a higher fundamental note? Well, I think it really does get down to the fact that, that it's probably six to eight plies, right? I'm just guessing. And that um, on the lower end of the, the spectrum, um, you are going to have um, a, quite a bit of difference in the, in the amount of mass used to produce them in terms of the amount of glue and the perfection and, and, and the equal distribution of that glue around the shell. Okay. So if they're if they're doing something quickly and they're using a lot of heat and pressure, they're going to actually make the, the wood itself and all of the all the the glue and everything added. They're going to add a much more mass, and in essence, by doing that pressure, they'll make it denser than it would be if it was in a, in its in its regular state. Anytime you put pressure and heat on something, you're taking those molecules and you're smashing everything together, right? So. So heat you treating, know, ultimately. It. If, if it's a piece of sponge cake and you put a lot of pressure on it, it's going to be a flat piece of sponge cake. <laughs> you know? So you're, you're, in essence, taking all of the voids out and you're mushing that down into where it's a, 
you know, it's a saltine a at the end of the day. <laughs> so, so this goes back to the, maybe the concept of heat treating. Right. And by heat treating a piece of metal or something, you're hardening it. So in effect, you're saying even though poplar as a primary wood is lower on the Jonka scale. Right. And it's softer, providing that darker fundamental note, the more plies they add, the more they heat treat it or, quote, or theoretically hardening it, they're right. now increasing its fundamental pitch just by sheer mass and pressure. Correct. Right. Okay. Well, that that helps clarify a lot because for years I've always said poplar shells are good sounding drums when tuned appropriately with the right heads given the correct situation. Right. Uh, much like your concept of custom drum shells, I am notorious for trying to dig a little bit deeper with people on what drum heads they choose, what their tunings are. Let's look at your bearing edges. What hoops are you using? Let's really talk about all these things because I believe that trying to force a square peg into a round hole never works. Correct. Uh, yeah, you might square out the rounds a little bit and be able to force that peg in, but you're really not going to achieve the sound you want. Um, so you really just helped answer maybe a, a very, very important question that maybe a lot of people are going to have some takeaway from. Because the industry tells everybody that maple provides a very round, full note. Oak provides a very sharp attack note. These are things that the industry has been telling people. Right. But you're now discussing it in a different way that maybe has a little bit more clarity. And I really appreciate that. And I thank you greatly for it. Yeah, I, I think what you if you look at maple, maple is a good it's an all around good wood. Right. It, it can serve a lot of different purposes. But the more you tailor your sound to something, the more you would move towards either something much denser or something softer because you're going to get sound qualities out of those that are considerably different than maple. Uh, you know, maple is kind of the go-to it's, you know, it's the standard flavor. It's, it's the vanilla flavor, right? Yeah. You've got 31 flavors. It's the one right there. Uh, it always works. Cause it's the same every time. Yep. Uh, but you know, I like deep, dark chocolate. Well, okay. Then you're moving off that spectrum. You're, you're, you're taking some chances, but you're going to have a whole different flavor and a different sound. One of the things that is true is we've done a lot of research and work on bearing edges and bearing edges have a significant difference. And for example, on most of our stave drums, we do a fully rounded bearing edge on the bass drum. So what you get is a bass drum that produces a sound that is a focused, great sounding note, eliminating a lot of the overtones and ringing and things that would be in a drum that had a 45 degree bearing edge or something like that. So those unwanted tones, which people generally put a pillow or they do stuff like that to mute the drum, um, you won't have to do that with that fully rounded bearing edge. You'll have a much more focused, powerful note because you're having more of the surface area of that bearing edge touching the batter head. Um, well, if I may interrupt before you go too far, yeah, you, you're now getting into a part of drumhead drum shell technology that I really, really am very, very. I'm digging deeper and deeper every single day. With first, I don't believe that every drumhead works on every single drum nor every single right. bearing edge. Right. And when we did our snare tuning masterclass, we did 
we did we didn't do a deep dive on it, but we did touch on it. Um, the rounded bearing edge, since we're talking about your kick drum, right? Because there is so much more surface area. Uh, is that one of the reasons why you guys choose Aquarian heads first? Because there's some more natural curvature, right? It is, and what we what we want to do is see how the heads seat, right? And mm-hmm. so if someone's going to get a 30 degree roundover and a significant mm. roundover, like in the old days, yeah, there are heads that sit on that and fit on it better. Uh, if you're going to do dual 45s, which has been an industry standard for quite a while, we do do those. We do very infrequently, or do a 45 degree roundover where you have a sharper edge that's out farther towards yep. the, the the collar. Uh, the more you do the 30 round, it starts moving inward. So the more you can have the external part of that drum head, the actual curvature to the collar, fit and snugly, and if you will, uh, it then reduces all that overtones and you have more of a focused note. If you want a set, and a lot of jazz guys do, where you have those overtones, you have that ringing, you have, you know, uh, they're not muting a lot of stuff. They want that kind of... Um, Beboppy note. Yeah, exactly. They want that note. Well, we do a 45 and then um, Remo uh, would be, you know, Remo ambassadors or, or um, emperors, depending on who you're talking to, um, uh, will make that really open, wide open sound. Mm-hmm. Um, that wide open sound doesn't necessarily translate into something that a lot of people want. So, you know, we, we do use Remo. We're, we're agnostic when it comes to drum heads. So we use <laughs> But we use Remo on a lot of the jazz stuff, um, a lot of the bebop kits, the stuff that's going to be more in the rock slash pop uh, middle kind of world. Uh, we tend to go with a texture coated, right? Mm-hmm. Single ply. Those that are harder hitters, we would go, you know, to a G2 uh, Evans head, which okay. is a very nice head. Um, and on the bass drums, we're finding for most of the bass drum players that we have, that aren't particular endorsers of their Remo, you know, that's a whole different deal. But we see the Super super Kick 1, Super Kick 2 as being a really good option for those that want to focus note with not a whole lot of overdoing, but a really powerful note. That Super Kick 1 or 2, depending on how muted you want it, does a great job. Same thing with Remo Power Stroke 3. So I've I've tested it on all kinds of different stuff in terms of those wide ranging uh, as a matter of fact, we're we're coming out, which you'll see soon. I think I sent you a little short video, but um, the the classic collection, which is the next snare drum we'll introduce here shortly, which will be done in maple and walnut, has a 45 degree roundover bearing edge that's identical reproduction of the Ludwig and Ludwigs of the 1920s. Oh wow! And it's a 10 lug, um, both with maple re rings, exactly the way they did it. And we're using solid brass tube lugs, which is also something to enhance the overall sound. On select ones, we use brass hoops. And we're using a double flange hoops. So there's close to what was done back in the day as we can come up with. And we're, we've, I've selected a uh, Remo skin tone head, which is the 5 mil thick and 3 mil uh, coating. Very, very light head. Awesome yeah. sound. And uh, an, uh, an ambassador hazy. So I went through all the different heads and try on it. It's a 14 by five and a half. It has a tremendous sound. We're also building internal mufflers into it 
Um, so if someone wants to dampen oh it up, they can. So in some of them, we'll, we'll, there'll be a whole branch of them that come out that way. But that's a drum that all this research I did um, recently led me to really um, uh, be impressed and admire some of this, this stuff that's coveted drums from the 20s and 30s. And if they were doing this great sound, let's see what we can do with modern technology and mm -hmm. take it maybe to another level. And, you know, we're not using calfskin heads or goatskin heads, uh, although we, we do have some of those. We have kangaroo skin heads as well. Um, they are awesome. They are the, provide the best sound, but they're extremely hard to maintain, and most drummers wouldn't have the patience to deal with them. You know, I you get them. I, I do. Yeah. yeah, you have to get them. You have to set them. That let the drum set, let it basically equalize and assimilate to the to the you know the environment that you live in, and then tune them. So it's way too much work, but the sound is incredible. The best closest I could come up with is a skin tone, um, which is a super thin head. Gives you a, um, a lot of openness, but not quite the ringy um, openness that Ambassador does. Mm -hmm. And I find Ambassadors useful in a lot of, but they just have a tinny overtone ring to me. That That's why texture coated tends to be more of our, my go-to. They just seat better on the drums that we build. Well, that's, that, that's very helpful because I know years and years and years ago, and, it, and I think it's true, sadly, for more shops than not. I think a lot of times shops and retail stores are, are so busy that they really don't have the time to properly tune or keep tune acoustic kits on the floors. And I, I at first I disagreed with it, but I understood why Mapex did it when they came out with that Sonic Clear bearing edge. I got it. You know, they made it so that it was really easy to tune for the average shop guy and it right. didn't take a lot of effort. It just it sounded decent with minimal effort. Uh, we don't, we don't necessarily do that here. We actually take the time to pull apart the drum that we just got in. It doesn't matter who it comes from. It all comes apart. We inspect bearing edges, snare beds. We look at how, how the hardware is affixed. What's the finish on the shell? Is anything coming apart? Is there anything that's potentially going to be an issue for a client down the line? Right. And then we go through the process of tuning it and reassembling it and making sure that it meets our standards because we don't want that drum coming back because of something that we missed. Um, right. yep. and, and I think it, it helps prevent some of that, that kind of later in life issue. And I really have started paying attention to the drum heads that vendors choose and I think it's just easier to buy 10,000 single ply heads with a metal crimp than it is to maybe spend a little bit more time and think we should really pay attention to this. So it's really refreshing to hear that you guys are doing this due diligence. You're digging into here's our drum. What's what's the best application that's available for us to use which head to get the right sound for the client? And I and I I'm very excited to hear that. Yeah, when it comes from a pure mass manufacturing standpoint, uh, one would be wise to pick a standard head, whether it's a yep. Remo or something, and go to Remo and say, send me 10,000 of those bad boys, and that's what yep. we're going to do. Um, to my left here are, are racks of drum heads, Evans, uh, Aquarian, and uh, Remo, and I have every different type. And so when I come out with a concept of a new drum, I try all of them. So being agnostic... I'll, I'll try that drum. As a matter of fact, I've got 
six of the new classics behind me. I put Evans on one, I put Remo on one, I put Aquarium on one. I, and so all of them have different heads. They're all exactly the same bodies. Everything on them is, but then sit there and play them and hear what comes out. And in this case, the, the um, skin tone one. And so it'll come out with skin tone. Our drums sets we think sound really good. Most of them uh, sound excellent with Aquarian. They seat well. And what we see is the durability of that head. Um, uh, you know, Remo, I played for years and years, but the ambassadors, you know, they, they, they're wearing tears just shows immediately. Quickly. You know? And uh, I'm not a big fan of, of having someone have to change their heads constantly when they could go to a G1 or an Aquarian texture coated and have more durability. And in my mind, they seat better on our drums. So, uh, yeah, we come with our recommendations because it's based on our experience with the drum as opposed to I can get those things for $4 a head. And so, therefore, yeah. they are our head. Absolutely. Fuck that. Because in some cases, I might want to use, you know, uh, some guy will want a Genera, you know, dry, uh, which is, you know, basically a muffled drum. Well, and the other guy will want something that's so wide open, you know, I want to give them the, the opportunity to go, okay, this thing's going to sound like a wide open tin can because it's a five mil head, you know, but that's what sounds great. Well, good. Well, I've got those right over here, you know. That's awesome. Now, you did mention uh, your lug casings, and I would like to touch on your hardware sure. a little bit, excuse me, perhaps a little bit more in depth because you do offer a variety of lug casing styles right. with, with various materials, plus you have your DS1 throw off. Which, at first glance, and me just being that former bike nerd, now back to being a cyclist and sort of thing, is that titanium added to your DS1 no, for the what, adjuster what, knob? Or? No, the, what we've got, the, 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 it's the same for our turret lugs, which is the main Doc Sweeney lug, as well as the, the strainer, the DS1. The bodies are made from aircraft, it's called 6060 aircraft aluminum. Yep, so they're milled from aircraft aluminum. Um, in the DSD case, uh, or the DS1 case, the, the levers on it are stainless steel. Okay. And the internal workings are all aircraft aluminum. There's a Teflon um, washer in it, mm -hmm. um, which is set between the face and the internal component. Uh, and the it is milled. Uh, to fit completely flush with a 14-inch drum. And it, the back side of it is milled out so you have only the diameter, a small piece of the ring of, the, of that cylinder that you see touches mm -hmm. the drum. And once again, it's, it's milled to fit flush. So we try to have the least amount of surface um, exposure or touching uh, with the least amount of mass but yet the strongest thing that we could produce. And the, and the lugs are exactly the same thing. The lugs are aircraft aluminum milled uh, here in Carlsbad, and the tubes are stainless steel. The fasteners are stainless steel. Uh, so everything on it is, you know, in essence, stainless steel. Um, so that we find that to be um, something that's the low mass that we can put on a drum. Uh, and we did a seven facet design because it reflects light and it, it has an aesthetic appeal to it. That's why you see that multifaceted with the indentation uh, on the on the lug and mm -hmm. uh, on the on the DS1. Uh, on certain drums that we're doing that are um, kind of a unique set, so we'll use these beaver tail lugs, for example, 
Um, those are not with internal springs, which I don't like. Um, they they fail and you get a little rattling. Ours don't have that. They're actually used with rubber inserts um, that keep the nibs on both ends. Uh, we also use solid brass tube lugs, which is the standard from the 20s and earlier. Um, and, you know, a, a great sound. If you use brass tube lugs with brass uh, uh, hoops, which might be, uh, in our case, we have chrome-plated and nickel-plated brass hoops, you get as close to what those drums were in the back. A brass hoop on a snare drum uh, will make a substantial difference in the sound because that the actual frequency and the hitting of that and the weight of that um, is significantly different than the pot metal used in in some of the die cast stuff, which has mm -hmm. the void issues that you talk about. Oh, there yeah. Are, there's imperfections in those, so you don't have the same effect around the drum because you may have a void on one side, which it doesn't have on the other side and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when you have the aluminum rings or the single flange, you basically have one piece of strip of metal. Um, so we think there's a lot of difference in that. Well, you don't see our stuff coming out with die cast hoops very often unless it's requested. Well, speaking of hoops, uh, and, and let's maybe touch on this quickly and briefly and just give your input on it. Um, I've always contended that triple flange hoops provide a great tuning range and good reliability, good, just a good structure. Die cast uh, adds a bit of projection and attack to the drum, but it also increases its rigidity and damps the drum a bit. Yeah, uh, I, I love single flanged hoops because I think they just they're kind of a great midway point between die cast and triple flange. And then wood hoops, regardless of their kind, provide a little bit more of a woody texture, more of a, a natural note of the drum. Right. Uh, am, am I close in that as it pertains to Doc Sweeney? Yeah, you're very close. I'll start with die cast. Die cast is significantly heavier than all of the other. And yes. very rigid, right? So you're applying mass to the top and bottom of the drum. And by doing so, you are um, creating a much more focused energy transfer. So that note is going to be louder and it's going to be more controlled. Okay. Because you're, in essence, you're hugging that drum very hard with the, with a little big grip. If you go to the triple flange, there's two versions of that. There's the uh, stick saver internal bend and the external yep. bend. The internal bend is going to create more mass towards the center of the drum because it's curved in. So it will have a slightly more controlled version than the triple flange, which is bent out. Infinitesimally small, but it does. I mean, just from a physics standpoint. Okay. And then if you go to the double flange, which is often called a stick chopper hoop, yep. you have, once again, less mass. Um and you have the thing that's going straight up. So you're going to have a much more open sound, uh, much, much more open. And then obviously with the, the single uh, flange uh, or just metal hoops, <clears throat> you will have the most open drum that you can produce with a metal hoop. I'm a big fan of wood hoops, personally. I love the sound of drums with wood hoops. And we yeah. do... We do uh, hoops that are different. I mean, if you look at the standard hoop in the industry, it's basically um, something in line with what Yamaha does, right? Mm -hmm. and it's maple and it's a square um, and it's got fairly big mass. We do a low profile wood hoop that has got a curvature in the exterior. It's significantly lighter weight and mass. 
um, and it's curved in such a way and it's closer to the drum head. So instead of having, you know, let's say an inch or three quarters of an inch above the head, it will be significantly closer, three eighths of an inch or something. Okay. Where when you're hitting rim shots and you're doing um, cross sticking and everything, you're going to get a pretty pronounced sound. But by putting that last mass, you are really, you're generating energy through the drum that starts with wood and goes into wood and it ends in wood. You're eliminating the metal, in essence, uh, out of the equation, except for the aluminum ring. So you have something that's going to be um, much warmer, uh, much more open, and that woody than anything. And to me, that's the richest sounding drum set uh, that you can get. Uh, less attack, of course, but yeah. just much more... Um, open warm sound you know kind of like uh you know in essence the way you would think some of the bigger congas and stuff is just very open especially if you do stave drum sets it's just incredible well that was that's always been my contention and i've done some experimentation you know with the old school yamaha vintage the 19 the eight what are they 18 ply 19 ply something crazy like that Right. Uh, versus using the thinner, taller flanged hoops and claws. Um, I, I'm a super big fan of wooden hoops. What, as far as, let's just use the term as stack height of that hoop, um, the Yamaha style was always very, very thick. Correct. Tall, I would say, what is it, three quarters? Three quarter inch tall, maybe? Actually, I'm going to grab a hoop right here. I'll show you. I have a couple of different wood hoops just to kind of give you a sense, and hopefully I can get it on the camera. Yeah. But this is a wood hoop. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is a wood hoop that's maple with inlays, right? Yeah. And you see here is instead of it being a, a straight up like they are on on most Yamahas, there's an indentation. So you're taking uh-huh. mass out, yep. and you have where you see a rim here. And then just enough on the inside to seat nicely over the head. So that's roughly a little inch and a quarter total from top to bottom in terms of thickness. Okay. And so this is, in essence, a Yamaha hoop. Uh, and, of course, mass taken off the side. Yeah. Right? And so this is a lot lighter. It's just really, really light, actually, compared to those. And it's only a few plies. So they're much thicker plies that are bent. Okay. So that's one. Now this, this is a 16 inch hoop, but this is a low profile hoop. And the major difference oh, wow. is it's total total curve, right? Oh, wow. A lot less uh, in terms of depth. So very low mass, internal where it sits very nicely flush against the exterior of the, of the um, oops, let me see if I can figure out how to get that in. And right here, Yeah. Uh, sits flush. And then you have just about three eighths of an inch that goes from where the, the head sits to where your sticks are. We built this for hand drums, but it works great on drum sets. It's super low profile. And because of the way we do it, you can do inlays exterior or interior. Um, just to give you one of the most interesting ones we've ever done, this actual hoop is made out of coco bolo. Oh my gosh. Heavy. Yeah, I did it just as an experiment. But it has ebony inlays and coca bolo. This is a super heavy head. (laughs) Holy mackerel. Yeah. It's the coolest one we've ever done. Wow. Um, 
but it kind of gives you an idea. So this, being a very lightweight, is going to give you an extremely open-sounding tom. Just wonderful, warm, open, long. You know, it's nothing restraining the resonance, especially top and bottom. Uh, and it's great on snare drums. It's our go-to. We do, we'll do the heavier one, which is this one. Right. Uh, that'll give you, you know, if you think about it, um, this is going to be more towards a single flange, double flange. This is going to be more towards um, probably uh, the die cast in terms of, you know, how it would be in the wood world. Right. But it's still substantially less, uh, substantially lighter and uh, better for the overall tone quality. That is so that's super, super cool. And this bad boy is very, very low profile. And what we do is we make them out of hard maple. Uh, we also make them out of babinga. Uh, so you can have babinga hoops. That babinga is almost twice as hard as your drumstick. Holy mackerel. So you cannot, I mean, you, you can't dent it with a drumstick. <laughs> You're going to break your drumstick first. So a lot of the hesitation of drummers are, oh, they're just going to wear out right away. Well, yeah, I guess depending on how you play, but not with the bingo hoops, you know, or a harder species. And in the last kit I put out, the bass drum, the hoops on that bass drum uh, were solid oak. It was one piece of oak. Oh, bent, my gosh. Uh, for both both of those hoops. So it is there's no glue in that in that drum at all, except for the scarf joint in the hoop. And it's, you know, more than a quarter inch thick uh, piece of oak bent for a 20 uh, inch bass drum well outside of the unibody shell what's next for doc sweeney well the next big thing is the unibody shell um and a unibody kit so okay we're having a unibody kit which i'd love for you to have um the the first unibody kit is going to be made out of elm which is a very deep resonant warm warm sound cathedral grain it's a it's a spectacular um, looking wood, uh, and it's just a really rich, 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 rich sound. That'll be the first unibody kit. Okay. The second unibody kit will be Myrtle. So two of my favorite go-to woods is what we're making the first two out of. Awesome. And what we're doing is on the snare drums, we're starting with oak. So we've got five in production. That'll be 14 by six uh, initially. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to then look at elm, and we're going to, which will take you door towards a deep end. Maple being kind of a good, uh, not maple, but we're going to do maple. We're going to do uh, oak, which makes a great snare. And then we'll look at ash as well. So someone that wants a tremendous crack, uh, a lot of projection, uh, ash. We do tiger ash snare drums. They are yep. incredible. I mean, Yeah, they, we have one. Yeah, they'll peel the paint off the wall. We got one. Um, so th that's, that's what we're doing. That's that's the biggest thing. And then, of course, the introduction of of the classic collection mm -hmm. and we are um going to do we have a doc sweeney pacific pearl so we are going to do a wrap on that it's a it's a, it's it's reminiscent of the peacock pearl from the 1920s it's really cool looking oh that's awesome yeah so we're going to do that um i'm also working on i've designed i think i have it here this is show and tell <laughs> <laughs> love it this is a new tom bracket that I've designed. And oh, wow. basically, it is extremely low mass. And we did this on a 3D printer. So it has all arches, so all angled, 
This is a leg, Tom. Yeah, yeah. It holds up to 12. It, it goes in like this. So hingeless, but it's going to be keyweighed. And then it's completely hollowed this way. And then there will be two rubber bladders that sit here. So nothing will touch the drum. Oh, wow. And this was done on our 3D printer. And I'm working with a machinist now to, to do the initial prototype. So it's now, extremely low mass. Is that a but is that a very two bolt aircraft aluminum as well? But is it a? It looked like it was a two bolt system to fix the tom leg. Is that true, or a single bolt? No, this is it'll be two bolt. You mean to mount to the drum? No, no, no on the outside for the leg. Oh, oh no. It, is it going to be, be hinged? Yeah, it'll be. It's hinged. Okay. And then That's there'll be a wing see. nut here. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So as low mass as we could get it, so there's virtually nothing touching the drum. The rubber bladders will be here. Gotcha. And so this is as close to an ISO amount as we can get, but you'll still drill the drum. Nice. It's just something we think is going to be um, the next evolution of the stuff that we've done before. Well, I appreciate talking about Doc Sweeney and, and your time today. I, I want to... I want to touch on a couple industry-related questions that may or you may or may not have an opinion on yet. Or I, I'm I'm not trying to get into the political side of it. I'm more just a visual. What are you seeing in in these questions, and maybe in a on a global perspective as well? Um, first and foremost, what do you think the future of the NAM trade show is? Um, I think you're going to see um, that dwindle in size considerably over the course of the next few years. Um, the reason being is the cost associated with doing NAM and the visibility that you get from doing NAM as any of the manufacturers uh, is quite limited. Um, and what I think is, let's just say, I'll pick a number. Let's say you're going to spend $20,000. You know, I don't know what the number is, but, you know, but easily $20,000. $20, is you're able to, as a drum manufacturer, you're able to do much more with that money by um, utilizing social media, but more importantly, doing what we call drum hangs or drum events around mm -hmm. the country. Yep. And so if you're going to do $20,000, you could probably easily do four major events around the country. So you've got some geographic, you're out there touching and meeting. Because um, I think part of, of establishing the relationship and establishing the brand is getting with the people that touch the direct consumers and getting them uh, on board to truly understand what they are selling and to have some emotional connection to that brand and why does that brand exist and why is it different and having pat and i or anybody for that matter but it'd be, it'd be pat and i in our case explain it all have a raw shell and go through it and we've done it at bentley's and we want to do it around the country and then followed on by that once the initial uh, tutorial educational um, immersion of doc sweeney for the staff is to have an event where we've got you know the, the kits around and we even maybe we have a snare giveaway we just get a bunch of people in to have the doc sweeney experience and mm -hmm. hear from me and and from pat on what makes these things different what what our commitment is to these things and we're not 
a major corporate conglomerate based in Japan or based in Oxnard, California, that produces these things offshore and ships them in uh, by the shipload. Uh, you know, uh, these are made by a handful of people uh, doing some dedicated work to uh, something that is not, you know, going to generate a hundred millions of dollars. It's, you know, it's just, this is a boutique and this is a direct connection with you, the owner, to these people that have created, you know, the four or five or six people that are involved. Well, it's funny that it, it's funny that you mentioned doing more of a kind of an outreach platform. Right. Uh, I was in high-end men's clothing sales for many, many years, and one of the things that at the time I had created was specific to that boutique, but I I implemented it here, and it was a global norm in clothing, and it's called the trunk show. And what it is is you feature a specific vendor at this particular trunk show and you've got representatives, but you're really focusing in on how this product interacts with that particular client. Right. We do, when we do a full blown introduction of a brand, we do a trunk show party. Uh, we have over 2000 clients in our, in our database and we see over 200 to 250 people through our events and it's fully catered. It's got an open beverage bar. We've done, we've got giveaways, there's merch, but we feature on the floor at that time, only that vendor, all of the other gear is tucked away on the shelves. It's up for display, but right. it's not the focus. Uh, right. We did, when we took on Sakai a few years ago, we'd had, God, I, I think that one topped out at like 256 people, 257 people. And we had the product manager from Sakai, so from Cord. We had our Sakai rep, and they were blown away. And and it was funny because the product manager even said he's like, "We don't get this many people to an artist performance." Yeah. Like, well, that stems from the way our community works. We don't, as a store, don't look at it as how can we sell it. We look at it how can we enrich the lives of drummers. And I'm going somewhere with this. Right. You mentioned that the attendance of NAM by vendors is going to be less and less, and the opportunity to touch the end user is becoming less and less. I am, I am so opposed to NAM as a platform right now, not because of the trade show, but because of what the industry has done to itself. And I'm, and I'm getting into that next. Everybody now is so quick to reveal their new products that the trade show no longer carries any relevance. That's problem problem one. Uh, if you're going to keep sending out or releasing early product reviews and early pictures, no one has to go to the trade show. You've exactly. now eliminated the need for your trade show. You're, you're doing it to yourselves. Right. You know, I heard vendors on the floor a couple of years ago pissing and moaning. Ah, Raul, Raul, consumer day, consumer day this. Okay. Isn't that who you're selling to? Exactly. Because let, let's be honest. If you took 100 retail music establishments in the country, excluding Guitar Center, well, no, actually more so Guitar Center than any others, and I, I will be the first one to tell you, I love Guitar Center. I love Guitar Center because at $2 billion a year, they're keeping a lot of amazing brands in business. They are also the largest advertiser of music merchandise on the planet. I don't have that kind of budget. Please right. keep talking about instruments. But here's the thing. My contention is 
the industry as a whole prevents the exposure of product because they only limit exposure to the captive audience that A, already has expensive gear, they bought their one kit that's expensive for the past two years, and they're really only pitching to the shop guy. So you're right. trying. So the industry is trying to create apostles out of people that don't make a lot of money but have a passion, which is great, but does nothing to grow the slice of pie or add another slice of pie to everybody's puzzle or or plate. You know, if you look at let's if I were to ask you who's the number one shoe company or who's the number one soft drink on the planet, your answers would be. Um, Nike and Coke. Ta-da! Why <laughs> is that? You find it everywhere, but our industry wants to continue to hide its instruments, to limit its exposure. Why are we still, as an industry, pitching to the same group of people? Why are we not looking at other opportunities? Why are, and, and I ask you as a, as a manufacturer, why are we not looking at alternative marketing platforms, other magazines. Why don't we see a drum set in Guns and Ammo? Why don't we see drum sets or guitars in People Magazine? Why are we not reaching the gazillions of other people that don't know playing an instrument is cool? Yeah, and, and that, that kind of gets down to some of the my marketing thought. I mean, back in my old days, I was I, part of my career. I was marketing and, you know, and CIO and all these. So I've kind of got all the touching all those things. But we are looking at uh, we did a big event, not shop related, but a big event in Nashville, a drum hang. That was all the major drummers came in. Mm -hmm. That was our first introduction to the world. We've done one at Bentley's. Uh, we did one at South by Southwest. We're doing one at, at a studio um, in Chicago in September. Oh, very and cool. So yeah. And so it's, you know, I'll do the major social media and that studio will invite all the drummers and musicians and shop owners and all that kind of stuff in. But that's what we're going to use our money for. We're not doing them this year. I've done it the last few years and really to kind of plant a flag that we existed. Um, now we, you know, people I think we know existed. We're in the pubs quite a bit. We're actually coming out in uh, the next drum head. We're in there a review of one of our kits. Oh, cool. And they'll be doing the uni modern drum will be doing unibody. So the traditional stuff is working, but I agree with you for us. We need to be connected. For example, one huge, huge um, market segment that's available for any musical instrument makers is all of the high tech folks in Silicon Valley and all the other places around the country where these kids are making gajillions of dollars. But we need to be in these environments that they frequent, whether yep. it's media or it's in cigar aficionado or you know, Somewhere. food and wine and shit like that. Exactly. So that's what we're going to spend all of our time and effort is uh, we, I think that for us to, to, to take the couple days to be in Tulsa, for example, and do that, you know, few hour session or whatever with the whole staff explaining everything about the company, about the stuff. We bring drums, we bring swag, we talk about it and then have that event where, you know, we do it with, you know, barbecue and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And allow people to sit around. And we generally have a Doc Sweeney artist there, too. So someone that actually plays our stuff on tour, you know, can explain, you know, what he's doing with it or, you know, whatever. And then we have a drum hang and people are playing different drum sets that are set around. And people start, you know, 
living the brand, right? Yep. It is. It becomes part of of the sales team. They really know what the brand is, what they what it why it was created, what it means behind it, and who's behind it. That yep. personal connection between us and the end consumer and us and the first person that talks to the end consumer is vitally important. And doing NAM doesn't do any of that. And doing we did PASIC, that doesn't do any of it. You know, a bunch of students and teachers and stuff, it's great, you know, you get some exposure. But at the end of the day, it's not getting it out into the hands of these folks. Well, so. that and and that's one of the things that I just I'm having a hard time with. And I think that's coupled with and maybe you've seen this, especially living in Southern California. There are no bands today in, quote, popular music. If you look at the top 40 music right now, there's not a band in there. Right. There's lots of singer artists. Right. There's, there's no band. So now there's no drum heroes. There's no guitar heroes. There's no piano superstars. Lots of people that can sing. They have no idea who their backing band is. They don't even know they've got a band. Exactly. So now we're talking about the lack of exposure, but all these TV shows, what do they feature? Oh, who's the next voice? Who's the next? Singer? Who gives a crap? Right. But but that's building this culture of. And this is where I, I find the NAM organization in particular is not addressing some very critical touch points that are the future of our industry. If we are not exposing instrumentation to these young people at some level, our industry is going to shrink much rapidly. Look at the 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 innovations that are happening in electronic drums and electronic music. It is accelerating. It is not decelerating by any stretch of the imagination. You have big players like Guitar Center that have methodically and slowly altered their store plans to feature more electronic and individual music creation and less of a band creative environment. Right. That doesn't bode well for anybody. No, I agree. So, well, one in, of the things that we're doing here in, in San Diego uh, is there's an organization called Drummers Without Borders. Yep, and, heard of it. And um, Felix Diaz runs it, and he's a tremendous person. And he and I used to share a, a studio downtown. And so I provide a significant amount of material, drums, um, head sticks, all kinds of stuff especially stuff that's kind of uh, not going to make the A grade because all this goes to schools and he goes and refurbs a bunch of drums and goes around to the different schools. And I'm talking middle, middle school and elementary and others and goes through and gets all these kids to play drums. Um, and they have to learn to how to take care of the instrument and all that kind of stuff. It's a tremendous introduction to music to these kids, you know, especially ones that come from, let's say, challenging environments they get to actually perform with all these other kids and put some music on so i think that kind of thing should be replicated across the country whether it's drums or anything else the other thing i'm keenly interested in and i'm supposed to be starting this fall is the salk institute here in tory pines in in, in la jolla is doing work on sound and the impact on uh, PTSD. Okay. And so with one of the doctors introduced me, uh, 
we're, we're going to do some analysis of, of the sounds of instruments and the ability for them to be used in an environment where people can be in a group environment um, and playing and working on the overall PTSD, because one of the major contributors for PTSD is the fact that they were part of an organization, part of a community, and no longer part of community. They're no longer felt that they're needed or all these other different contributing factors. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a thing too that we're looking at because I got time to do it. So awesome. Well, what what do you, you know, considering you're an up and coming brand, and I say up and coming because boutique brands are competing in a giant sea of available product. Right. And it's and it's very hard for your voice and your branding and your imagery to to get out to more than let's just say social media's less than 1% friends reach. It's a bunch of bull crap for that algorithm, but hey, you know. Um, you know like they always say if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. Um, <laughs> what do you see or that might be either some some roadblocks to the industry or what might be some trends for the drum industry that you see? Well, um, I think you're going to see more and more consolidation. Uh, there'll be a lot of people dropping out the, um, in one side, it's economies of scale, right? And the okay. ability to produce uh, a DW collector's kit for, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever. Um, so there'd be more and more offshoring and more, uh, of that. So I think there'll be quite a bit. There's rumors that DW is, is for sale. What? Yeah. There, you know, there's pretty, there, yeah, the, the rumor is pretty strong that, that um, they're for sale or, or trying to find someone to buy them. So. Wow. That, yeah. Um, Crabiato is another organization that's in turmoil. Uh, they're moving to Nashville. They lost their um, key person, obviously. They've lost some of their other key people because of the fact that they've been in hibernation for since his death. So I think you're going to see that there'll be a lot of people dropping out of it, and the the, the the number of boutique organizations will diminish. What you will see is some organizations will define a niche uh, and define a brand that will fill a void. And whether that's a void for... Uh, drummers from 30 to 60 that have some, you know, that you, that are lawyers that want to be drummers again, mm-hmm. um, or or studios or colleges. Because one of the things that we're doing is we're putting a drum set in the Berkeley Music School. Oh, outstanding! Uh, and Berkeley Music School is where my son-in-law graduated. He he did his undergrad there in, in music, and now he's doing his doctorate in audiology. So we got connections and we want to get involved with like University of uh, North Texas. Oh. Uh, so where some of these great Woo. jazz programs are, we're now approaching through Doc. My Doc, his background is education. Uh, he was superintendent of schools. And so he's extremely well versed in what, how schools acquire music and how they're doing it and all that kind of stuff. So our, our hope is to then penetrate into the top jazz high school programs with uh, Doc Sweeney, you know, uh, school price, virtually, I mean, cost, at our cost, to get those drums into these locations. Um, and we think that is is where we establish the longer-term viability of the brand. You know, if you go to if you go to Berkeley Music School and Chris told me, you want to make sure your drum set's put in this studio in the school, because that's where everyone aspires to get 
to play the top stuff. The Steinway's in there, you know, the Doc Sweeney drums that would be in there, um, all blah, blah, blah. And so all of these percussionists that are going through there are getting exposure to it. They become teachers or professionals. They carry that with them, you know. And catching them at that stage of their life when they still haven't developed strong allegiances is probably what you want to do from a brand perspective. That's that's outstanding. I I just think those early touch points are going to be really critical to everybody's success. We've seen this year alone with the floodings that we've had in Tulsa, the venues that we've lost, the ones that were destroyed or damaged, uh, just the change in the musical environment. There's a very weird dark spot that we're entering. Bands are having a hard time getting booked into local venues, which I blame both parties. I, ba- I blame both the band and the venue. Uh, that's becoming a very critical, critical issue. Uh, and and maybe you could key in on this. Uh, within Within the Southern California local music kind of world, do you see any merit or value in venues starting local shows earlier in the evening? For example, say at seven, eight o'clock at the latest, but being done by 11 or 12? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a lot of benefit to that. Um, and it's connected to, you know, how one is going to spend their evening. And that is, you know, hit a dinner, go to the show, get back in time so you can either rest over the weekend or, or go to work. Um, I just think you're going to get um, you're going to expand your market opportunity by positioning it that way. And I think there's a, a vibrant um, small venue environment in Southern California. You know, there there's the belly up and there's all these smaller little venues that even big names come into. But they're small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's that desire for the connection. Right. And I think what you're seeing is going to be more of. Uh, a reaction to this loss of community that people are experiencing because of social media, because of the way things are done and they're focused. And I think there's going to be this desire, whether it's our generation or even the younger generation, whether it's X or Z or whatever, are going to want to do that hang. You know, they're going to, there's something about going and hanging out with a bunch of people and listening to music. Yeah. Actually seeing the people do it, you know, instead of YouTubing it. Um, so I do think there will be a, but it, it has to be done in an environment and at a timing, you know, so I think people, the, the, if you will, um, talent need to figure out, you know, when do we do it and how do we do it and where do we do it and how frequently do we do it as opposed to, oh, it's at eight o'clock and, you know, the warm up band and then this band and, you know, I, I just think delivering it in a, in a more customer friendly way. You know, that, and not necessarily you have to use Ticketmaster and all these other things. You know, you're going to, you because know, some of these smaller bands, it's, you know, it's a hell of a great experience to be in an environment where there's maybe a thousand people or 500 people, you know, as opposed to 30,000 people. That, well, to me, that, it, that, it, that sucks. <laughs> well, it, it's funny that you mentioned the size of the, of the room. I, and this is kind of my big, stick in the eye to the industry as well. I think the concept of endorsements is completely off base for some of them, for some of the majors. And, and, and I kind of liken it to this. I have never been at a concert with my favorite drummer 
that he has walked off stage and spoken to me about his gear. Right. But at a smaller venue, you might have more touch points for that particular artist. You might get an opportunity to talk to two or three kids, two or three young adults, two or three retired gentlemen with money that right. might provide that opportunity. Well, you, you can actually virtually almost reach out and touch the thing, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's within 10 feet of you. You're hearing it. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the major things that we're looking at doing, and Pat's really in, on the forefront of, is is getting our stuff backlined around the country. So when they're on TV, you know, our stuff's been on TV. But they, these drummers that will just pop in and sit on a gig and then they're off because, they're you know, it was yeah. just in this little spot or whatever. Well, if they're backlining and they sit behind that thing, they get the experience that that talk, that networking of the experience they had with whatever that instrument was. Yeah, it, it's really starts. You know, it really grows. It networks out. It blossoms, you know, and I think getting that actual exposure to the folks, you know, is the only way. I mean, it's like cars. If you get them out there and people are driving around and they're experienced, you know, oh, it's a fucking Mustang. I got to have one of those bad boys. Shit. <laughs> you know. You get all the, all the pictures in the world, but until someone gets in there and he's fucking driving in that stick shift and hearing that thing, you know, that that's when you that's when you're sold, you know. Yeah. It's not when it's sitting in the fucking showroom and not started. I just I I just I don't know I I, I really with you I think getting the getting the product in front of those people is going to be the critical aspect. Uh, we get. I would bet once every couple of days we get somebody asking the question, Hey, how do I get endorsed? Okay. My question always is, well, who do you want to be endorsed by? Are you currently using their products and do you love it? Have you been promoting those products in your current social media platforms? And then my final question is why should they endorse you? What are you doing that is so special? What makes you different? And and usually those questions are met with just complete flatline. Beep. Right. It's like they don't get it. And that's not the person that should be endorsing those products. We've we've been working with a few drummers that tour and really promote our brand as a shop. So much so that. We've been working on a t- gigging, touring pro level endorsement out of the shop. So they can pick and choose whatever products they want, but they're endorsed by the drum shop brand. Got it. So if they like a Sabian ride and Minel crashes, but they want 16 inch K custom dark hats, they have no loyalty to any of the brands, giving them the flexibility to kind of experiment, to really find what, what products they can connect with. Then we can help them move into that next phase of, endorsement conversations you know we can help guide them and coach them we can be their industry friend and and kind of their partner in business because if they grow as a brand we're going to grow as a brand and that's that i think is the critical aspect um yeah i think one of the things that i'd like to to point out to and we do have some endorse uh, we have some relationships and they're great ambassadors i mean they're you know, they're good in their communities. They do a lot of stuff and they're well-connected, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we really cherish those and there's very few of them. But I think instead of having a drummer sit behind an appliance, 
you know, uh, he sits behind something that he's got ownership in and he's got, you know, it, you know, so you're just bopping in, 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 you know, oh, it's a, I'm driving a Ford today and I'm driving a Chevy tomorrow and yep. whatever. It's like, I'm driving a car that I was involved in building, you know, yep. you have some relationship to it and you have some relationship to the people involved. That is a long standing thing that yep. you start speaking in terms of your drum shop or this or that because of the value of that relationship. Right. Yep. And that can be a drum. It could be the drum shop. It can be whatever. Um, an instructor, you know, that kind of thing. But absolutely. The more we get out in terms of exposure to the educational world to, like I said, Berkeley and all that, um, the more you become part of that drumming network environment, you know, you're, you're out there in the end user, the educate educator, um, the student, all of it starts to know, well, this is the kind of thing as opposed to, you know, it's Yamaha in each room uh, or a Pearl in each room because Pearl gives them to them. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that whole, I still have my, my misgivings about endorsements and their investment. We, in the cycling industry, we have this, uh, we have a platform that was very, very powerful and it was more or less a privateer program. It was very straightforward. And, and I've, I've been trying to figure out ways to pitch it to other, other vendors in our industry it's it's very simple, and maybe this might be something that you already do, but the idea is athlete, musician, whatever, wants these items from this vendor. Well, in order to get those, you have to make an investment and a commitment, but in doing so, you're treated with these amount of benefits. And they could be a handful of, let's say, here's your starter benefits by being a privateer and an early ambassador to the platform. If you, if you exceed these expectations and we see a market difference in how much you've allowed and helped the company to grow, now we start talking about moving you over to this next platform, which now leads you into the big realm where we're really doing some cool stuff with you. Um, and it forces that investment. So in the cycling industry, you were able to buy your clothing, a frame, um, and some other various team paraphernalia for a dramatically reduced price. But what happened was, is that local races that there was the team truck, that sort of thing. You had access to the team mechanic. You didn't have access to all the pro level stuff like the soigneur and all the available food, but you had a connection. You had a place to go where you had an affiliation and an association. Um, That carries with it its own kind of pride. It's like, hey, I may be only on the B team, but I get treated like I'm on the A team. And I had to make my own investment. I, I, I think if there was a way to bring that from, you know, these top endorsed artists, but bring something down that's scaled down, but to the guys that are slugging it out day in and day out, that are carrying their drums in the sleet and snow, that are driving all the extra miles to do the gigs, to make that hundred bucks, 200 bucks to pay their rent, to buy their next piece of gear, to move into that next gig, to buy another batch of CDs to promote their project. I, I think there, if there's a way that we can become catalysts to their success, they in turn make that investment in us. And as an industry, we just don't do that by and large. Right. And I think it's a big hurdle. I I agree. And I think, you know, part of the method to the madness, as I mentioned earlier, is the educational thing. And 
we're also um, most likely going to be involved in, I don't know if you're familiar with DCI, Joan Corps yeah. Internet. Um, Pat and I were both in, in cores when we were kids. Um, and one of my friends runs one of them. Oh, and cool. so we plan to be at DCI next year in Indianapolis and have a big presence there and talk to all the instructors of the various cores. And these are kids that are like exceptionally talented drummers, all under the age of 21. It's the perfect place for you to establish, um, you know, that kind of brand awareness to people that, uh, A, have a passion so much that they march around, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> In, in the you know in the summer and are extremely talented drummers of all different ages. But the interesting thing about it is their fathers or mothers are probably from drum corps in their era, like I was, you know. And those are people that are also targets for some of this stuff. And and you know getting that relationship uh, at that stage is before they start formulating a long term. Uh, relationship with anything is where you kind of get it, you know, where you you establish yourself. You you become a Coke person or a Pepsi person, right? <laughs> yep, it's it's that simple. I mean, it really is. It, you know, if you got Coke in your bloodstream, you know, you're generally a Coker all your life. You know? so be careful with that statement. Sorry, we're not referring to drugs. We're referring yeah, to Coca Cola. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody listening, we're not we were not condoning drug use. That's funny. Um, I, Stephen, I can't thank you enough for taking your time on a holiday um, to to join us for on on too stupid to know that I can't and discussing with us Doc Sweeney and teaching us so much about what you guys are doing as a brand and as a company. It's super super powerful to me because I'm a firm believer that I I only sell what I believe in and uh. I, I firmly believe in what you guys are doing. So one of the things I can tell you uh, is this has been the most exciting stage of my life. And I've done some very interesting things in my career, but I've never had the passion for what I did as I do now. Yeah. And when you're doing what I think would be, you know, works of art in a way, you know, uh -huh. I mean, there's a unique things, building instruments that live on. Uh, there's something about having all of these children, you know, and yeah. I, I have a, a passion for each and every one that co that comes out of this space. And that's a little different there. There is a connection with me and with Pat with what we do. Um, we love what we do. We're drummers and this is what we do. And we do it not for financial reward because uh, you probably wouldn't be a drum maker if you were trying to become a millionaire, you know? Oh, no joke. Jesus. <laughs> um, there's, there's better ways and simpler ways to do it, but there's nothing, a, nothing like building a kid or delivering something to someone and seeing them experience that drum set, you know, uh, or play live with it or whatever. And I've been invited to concerts where guys are playing the stuff. And I tell you, man, that is that is a wonderful experience. Um, and uh, with any luck, we'll have quite a bit more of it. Well, I look forward to to seeing the future with with what you guys have created. And I, as I as I alluded to in the upcoming videos, we finally got our videos shot for the snare drums that we've we've acquired. And uh, I uh, I was put in a situation where I had to take the Super Legend out for a gig. Um, 
I don't regret it one bit. And I, I find myself fighting the urge to own it personally. Um, <laughs> I, it's one of those things where when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, how do I, how do I get to take that drum on a gig? And unfortunately serendipity struck in a very awkward way, but it is an incredible drum and I am super blown away by it. I uh, appreciate it. Yeah. I, uh, I'm a big fan of, of what we did with that, and I, I love Walnut. So, yeah, it was kind of a double whammy. Well, I appreciate your time, and I really hope everybody enjoyed what they got to listen to today. And, man, Stephen, thank you so much again for taking time with us today on, on a holiday. I really appreciate it. And you bet. I, I look forward to our next conversation, and I wish you a fantastic rest of your week. Well, we look forward to the opportunity to get out there and visit you in Tulsa again. Well, we're going to do that, and we're going to have those discussions. <laughs> well, we, we have that coming up because we have our anniversary party coming up. And usually, if we don't do a standalone trunk show, we tie it into our anniversary party. Great. And that'll be the, the Monday night. And this is kind of a jacked-up way to do the date. Uh, it'll be, we do all of our events on Monday nights because most of our drummers work. Sure. But we'll do it the Monday night usually the week of October 9th. So whatever that date is. Uh um, So for example, the week of October, it would be Monday the 7th in October if, if we work that out. Okay. Um, But it's something to think about. And I know it's, you know, five weeks away ish, but um, you know, we've got a lot of prep to do on that because, you know, Pat and I'll work something out. We'll be doing a Hollywood drum show on the 12th. Uh-huh. So we'd come out and go back, um, but we'd love to do it. I love to get out and do it. This is the the best way to be an ambassador uh, of what we do. You know, they can kind of get a sense of um, what's behind the, the wizard behind the curtain, I guess. <laughs> well, and our parties give you really a chance to mingle with the direct drummers and the direct community. Uh, right. We usually feature like when we do a full a full drum trunk show. We do a lot of discussion about the product. It's unveiled. We keep it all under tarp so nobody sees it till the night of the party. Um, everybody gets a chance to play it, and everybody gets a chance to put their hands on it, to look at it, and to really kind of dig into the nuts and bolts of those of the of that gear. So, right. Yeah. I'll. Um, Excellent. I. Uh, I'll tell you more about that, but you know, I'm going to let you go. Otherwise, we're going to keep all talking, right. and this podcast is going to have to be two parts. But. Thank you so much, Stephen. You have a great day, and we'll talk to you You soon. You too. Take care. Bye-bye now. Well, that wraps up another episode of Too Stupid to Know That I Can't. Again, I'm your host, Roger, with The Drum Shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We really appreciate you listening. And if you would be so kind, if you liked this episode, if you hated the episode, if you thought it was partway there but not all the way, I would love to hear your comments so that we can make this podcast so much better for you. Additionally, if you did like this podcast, please share it. Please let everybody know about it. We really want to share some great information with some great drum builders, along with some other information that maybe you just won't get from the this industry, the cycling industry, or selling tips, or just about anything else that kind of rattles through our brain. But thanks again. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. There's a light that shines off in the distance. We may never know of its name Where wealth is not measured in substance And pleasure's not writhing in pain Your promises led me to ruin 
Your kiss foretold of my grave And I'll gladly embrace the destruction And drink the remains of the days coming home.